0: The bigger the government is, the more powerful it is, the more authority it wields, the more people it has control over, the more dangerous it is to liberty.
1: Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, Liberty Lions, to another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast, as always, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty here on the flagship program, the OG Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we now have three separate shows you can hear each and every week. Electric Liberty Land on Wednesday, hosted by Brian McWilliams, your weekly dose of culture, comedy, and liberty. And of course, John Odermatt's Felony Friday, every single Friday, where he takes a look at our oh-so-broken Criminal Justice System. Be sure to check everything out by subscribing to the Lions of Liberty Podcast feed on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you find podcasts, my friends. We're there. You are listening to the 280th episode of this program, which means you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything I discuss with today's guest over at lionsofliberty.com/slash two eight zero. My guest today is the communications director for the Tenth Amendment Center. He is the author of the book Our Last Hope rediscovering the lost path to liberty and he's the host of his own podcast thoughts from maharry head i am pleased to welcome mr michael maharry michael are you ready to roar? roar how's that oh that's great mike <laughs> that's how i like him getting certain things off with a good roar <laughs> that's right All right, Mike. And, and, you know, there was a specific reason I invited you on the program today, and that was because you recently responded, both in blog and podcast form, to Libertarian Party Chairman Nicholas Sawarks' recent comments on this program regarding Ron Paul and whether or not the concept of states' rights is a, quote, libertarian position. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But first, I want to learn a little bit more about you. So I want you to start off telling the listeners out there just how you first became engaged in politics and what led you to your work with the Tenth Amendment Center.
0: Well, I'll give you the abbreviated version because it's been actually quite a uh, long and, and arduous journey from where I was to where I am.
1: Don't be afraid al- of the long version either, though. We can <laughs> we can go on. We can go wherever this thing takes
0: us. All righty. Well, I've always been interested in politics and and somewhat engaged in uh, at least as an observer of, of the uh, political world. But I call myself a reformed neocon. Uh, I was definitely in my uh, early days, my 20s and 30s, hardcore, Republican, Rush Limbaugh, religious right, warmonger extraordinaire. And uh, not really very proud of that, but it is what it is. And I think a lot of people have have come from that particular point of view. I kind of got involved in the liberty movement, as they call it, uh, through the Tea Party, believe it or not. I was one of these people who uh, suddenly became outraged at the election of Barack Obama and you know figured he was the end of the world and started going to some Tea Party events in the local area here in Lexington, Kentucky. And it was at that point that I really started to get a sense that I wanted to get actually involved in politics. I felt like I needed to do something. You know, I've got a couple of kids. At the time, they were preteens, and you start looking at what is ahead for them – And I was concerned, so I started to think, you know, I need to do more than go out to some park somewhere and hold up a sign and and maybe go vote every four years. And that led me to the Tenth Amendment Center. And the reason that I kind of chose that direction is I always have had this intuitive sense that government should be limited and, of course, I think that's part of why I was a Republican because obviously public Republicans are for limited government, right? That's what they say. I I don't know. uh, That's what I've been hearing though. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm skeptical of that in this day and age, but at that time that was kind of my mindset. And, And so I started looking at, uh, You know various organizations that that talked about limited government and and whatnot and stumbled across the 10th Amendment Center on the website. And at first I thought, you know, maybe these people are kind of crazy, but started to read some of the uh, information on the website. And I always had, you know, I, I knew what the 10th Amendment was. I was educated enough to understand that it did at least theoretically place some limits on federal power. And I was all for that. And one day I said, you know what, there's a volunteer link on here. I'm going to click this volunteer link and see where it leads. And, uh, ended up talking to, uh, Bryce Shonka, who was with the 10th Amendment Center at the time. And, you know, said, Hey, I'd like to get involved. And they said, well, you want to run a state chapter in Kentucky? And I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I had really no idea what I was getting into, but I'm a journalist by, by training. And, uh, apparently I impressed Bryce and Michael Bolden with my writing ability. And, uh, Pretty quickly they decided that I should be the National Communications Director. And looking back at, at the time, you know, I really had no idea what I was doing in terms of philosophy and, and really understanding the Constitution. But I kind of went through a crash course in, in the next year and began reading things like the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions and Tom Woods' book on nullification and a couple of books on constitutional originalism and was really blown away because I'd never been taught this stuff in school. You know, it's like, I thought I was a pretty smart guy. You know, I went to college. I took history classes. I'd never heard any of this stuff. And I was blown away by what I didn't know. And that, you know, it was like a rabbit hole and I just kept getting deeper and deeper and, and reading ratification debates and, and obscure letters between people in the founding era. And I find it fascinating and as i went along i realized that this is important stuff this is what americans need to understand in terms of uh, you know the limited nature of the government that was intended for the united states and and even deeper the uh, relationship between the states and federal government and that kind of led into an even deeper you know examination of political philosophy and my own personal you know my religious beliefs I'm a I'm a practicing christian and I started to realize that some of my my beliefs in terms of my faith didn't quite line up with my political beliefs particularly blowing up people all over the world and <laughs> that does seem so, to be a bit of a conflict doesn't it yeah it really does and <laughs> to love thy and neighbor stuff, exactly and, and so you know that was kind of the last that was kind of the last barrier of, of breaking down that america's great and and we need to you know project power all over the world and really at this point I, you know if you're going if you want to pigeonhole me with a label i would probably be considered an anarcho capitalist although i know people will find that weird working for an organization like the 10th amendment center because i know there's some dichotomy there but uh, i i believe that the the work that we're doing at the 10th amendment center to decentralize and to undermine federal authority is a strategy for the broader principles of liberty which is getting rid of as much government as possible so that's the uh, that's the Reader's Digest version.
1: Gotcha. All right. Well, let, let's kind of start with just the, the very bare bones basics before we dig into the weeds a little bit here. Can you just start off for those not fully familiar with the Tenth Amendment? What does it specifically say and what is your interpretation? And then what is the mission of the Tenth Amendment center specifically in sort of, uh, I guess, encouraging that or pushing forward that interpretation?
0: Sure. Well, the Tenth Amendment is what is known as a rule of construction. So it doesn't actually do anything. You know, it's not like, it it doesn't prohibit anything. It it basically tells you how to interpret the constitution. And the, in a nutshell, what it says is that any power that was not delegated to the federal government by the constitution remains a power of the state governments or a power of the people themselves. So in in, in the simplest terms, the Constitution created a union between sovereign states, so each state is actually a sovereign entity, and it is actually the preeminent political society in the American system. These societies formed a union, they delegated certain powers and authorities to the general government, and they retained all of the rest to themselves. So the federal government is really only supposed to do a very small number of things, most of which you will find in Article One, Section 8. Most of the things, as Madison put it, deal with uh, foreign powers, defense, foreign trade, and and international relationships. And and Madison said in Federalist 45 that everything that has to do with the life, liberty, and prosperity of the state and the uh, liberties of the people, those things were to be left with the states and the people themselves. So federal government, very small, powers few and defined, state powers, numerous and indefinite. Uh, all flowing from the people of the states. So the Tenth Amendment Center is an organization and basically we have kind of a, uh, we're kind of like the Federal Reserve, except not. We have a dual mandate or a a dual goals that we're working towards. One is education, to teach people proper understanding of the Constitution, constitutional originalism, educating people about this strange concept called nullification, which is simply using state authority to undermine federal power. And then we have an activist path that is essentially using putting that nullification into practice, finding ways to use the authority of the states to block, stop, and hinder unconstitutional unwarrantable federal actions, which, when you get down to it, is uh, most of them. so we do most of our work in terms of our activism, which we're heading into uh full bore nullification season now with all of the state legislatures getting underway. It involves advancing uh, legislation at the state level on issues that range from marijuana legalization to undermine federal prohibition of marijuana, which is clearly unconstitutional. We do state action that undermines the federal surveillance state, that undermines federal gun control, federal food regulations, EPA, Obamacare, almost anything we can use these particular strategies to block federal authority and, and to bring power back down to the state level in a decentralized fashion that it was meant to be. So,
1: I think one of my favorite projects that I, I've seen from you guys, the 10th Amendment Center, is uh, maybe you can, guys can kind of give us an update on it, but is this thing in Utah with the NSA surveillance, uh, like I guess their data storage center, and uh, the idea of cutting off the water to that federal facility in Utah. And I, I remember hearing about it maybe a year or, or more ago, but can you update us on, on the progress of that or maybe get, dig into it a little bit more for those not familiar with it?
0: Yeah, the off now project is is my favorite thing that we've ever come up with. And it was we came up with this idea around the time that Snowden was really rolling out with the revelation. So you were seeing about every other week articles about, hey, the NSA is doing this and NSA is doing that. We started to think, you know, what can you do at the state level to undermine or stop NSA? And, you know. From off the top of your head, it's like, well, nothing. You know, it's a federal program. What are they, what's the state gonna do? And then we started to realize, and we started doing some research, and we realized that the NSA is actually maxed itself out in Maryland, where its main base is. They've maxed out the power grid there. So they're looking for places that they can expand where they have access to power, water, and other infrastructure type of things that they can no longer tap into in Maryland. And one of these Projects was the Utah Data Center, which is basically just a huge data storage place where the NSA sucks up all of this information on virtually everybody in the world and stores it in Utah. And it just so happens that this facility uses like I think it's like 42 million gallons of water a day is what they projected it would use when it's at uh, full capacity uh, in order to cool all these supercomputers. And that water is supplied by the city of Bluffdale, which is a subdivision of the state of Utah. Well. Anti commandeering doctrine, which is a a kind of a Supreme Court approved constitutional principle, that the federal government cannot force states to implement federal programs or to support federal programs or to enforce federal laws. You know, the the states can't legally, you know, stop the federal government. They can't like arrest federal agents, although we could have a debate about that even. But in, in today's in today's political climate, that's not going to happen. But states don't have to cooperate, and states don't have to allow the NSA to use their resources. So therefore, the city of Bluffdale would have every right to say, you know what, NSA? You know, We have this water contract with you. We're going to terminate it. So you figure out how to get your water some other way. And of course, no water, no NSA facility. So Maybe they can collect just... some
1: rainwater or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, get some little barrels up there in the desert, you know. <laughs> So this is just one of, you know, we try to be creative and and the the federal government depends on state and local action to do almost everything that it does. and You know, I think one of the best examples is marijuana prohibition. You know, you see these DEA raids, there's always your local sheriff and your local cops are hanging out and they're all working together. You pull away that state and that local assistance, the federal government has to do it by itself. It doesn't have the manpower, it doesn't have the resources to do all the crap that it's doing. So by... Withdrawing state and local cooperation, which is perfectly legitimate even according to the Supreme Court, we have a great deal of power at the state and local level that unfortunately is not used nearly to the extent that it could be.
1: All right, Mike, and as I mentioned earlier, this conversation—or at least my, my recognition of your blog and how I found you—was that you had made some remarks, uh, kind of responding to the remarks made by Nicholas Serwark, who came on this program, and—and and really at the time, I—I I, I just kind of thought of it as a, as an offhand remark, and maybe I—I I, you know in retrospect, maybe I could have dug in further because you know I guess it was sort of a, a slight to Ron Paul in a way. Uh, but it, basically, Nick's point was, and I had brought up the idea of Ron Paul and how he was, you know seen pretty universally as kind of a quote-unquote pure libertarian, or at least closer to one than, say, someone like Gary Johnson. And, uh, you know, he kind of responded by saying, well, yeah, Ron Paul's great, but, you know, even Ron Paul's wrong on some things. And I, I kind of now, looking back, wish I had dug into more of the specifics, which he did later get into in some Facebook live streams. Uh, but he basically remarked, look, Ron Paul's not always right. Uh, you know, he supported some bad bills and, you know, some of states' rights in ways that aren't libertarian. And, that, and he basically made the statement that states' rights is not, in and of itself, a, a libertarian position. Obviously, that's that's a very brief summary, but I'll, I'll link to the full interview in the show notes for today's program at lionsofliberty.com slash 280. So everyone can go back and check that out. But why don't I just start with, with what was your biggest kind of uh, contention to Nicholas Sirwark's comments?
0: Well, I think like a lot of people, I reacted. To, I saw you know, it was one of those things where you see this quote out of context, and I was like, "Whoa, what's he talking about?" So I actually did bother to go and listen to the the segment of the interview to get the context, and, and basically, it was in the context of of marriage equality. And I actually went and and actually had some interaction with Nick on his Facebook page to kind of clarify where he was coming from because I didn't want to misrepresent his position, and I don't think that I did.
1: And right away, I want to commend you for that, because I can tell I've had a lot of discussions and seen a lot of discussions that came about from this, and I could tell from a lot of the comments that I would honestly say maybe 80 to 90% of the people remarking definitely did not listen to the interview, because they were sort of, you know, battling some straw men that Nick never put up there, and, you know, it's, it's definitely fair to criticize an actual position that you've heard and thought about, as you have, but so many people out there just grab a headline and then start spewing things out, so I definitely for taking the time to actually figure out what you were about to criticize,
0: right? So I think there's a there's there's a number of layers to to this whole debate, and, and I think Nick's main point was that utilizing quote unquote states' rights to thwart marriage equality is not libertarian position to take. And, and I think I would agree with him on that just you know from a fundamental standpoint that uh, any government interference with people's relationships is not libertarian. I completely agree with that. In fact, I don't think any government anywhere should be involved in marriage in any way, shape or form. It's you know that's that's antithetical to my political philosophy. But I think that characterizing states rights, Per se is unlibertarian. Then that gets into a little bit of a different category. And I actually asked Nick to clarify. I said, "Are you saying that you believe that the federal government should police the states and ensure that the states do not take certain actions that you construe as violating rights? You know, your conception of liberty." And his answer to me, uh, paraphrasing, was, "I believe that the federal government has the authority to stop states from discriminating." So that's the position that I was essentially taking on. And I want to look at it, if if we can, kind of on two streams, which will flow together here in a second. Uh, I think first off, I look at this. Well, let me back up a second. Let me make one comment up front because I know there's some people yelling at their uh, podcasting device right now (laughs) going, states
1: don't have rights.
0: And I just remember your iPhones
1: can't yell back.
0: Right. Uh, And and I just want to. Sure, everybody, I understand that. I don't believe that a state has a right. Only human beings have rights. And states' rights isn't really a very good term as far as it goes in terms of being you know, verbally accurate. But it is a shorthand that we all pretty much understand today that basically describes the relationship between state governments and the federal government. So. It would be more accurate to say state powers or state authority. I like using the term state sovereignty because, as I said earlier, the states are the premier political society in the American political system. So. I understand that the state itself doesn't have rights. When I say states' rights, basically what I'm saying is the state has a right, I'll use air quotes, to exercise certain powers and take certain authorities constitutionally without federal interference. That's what we mean by that term. So I just want to set that aside so that we're, so we're clear on terminology because I, I think it is a valid argument to say, well, states don't have rights. So we can kind of set that to the side.
1: It's kind of the clash between philosophy and pragmatism in a way. Yes, philosophically, almost every libertarian is going to say a state uh, does not have rights in and of itself. But then you need to translate, okay, what are we talking about when we're saying states' rights in our current political framework? And those might not necessarily be the same thing.
0: Right, exactly. So – my objection to Nick's position comes on two levels. one of them is purely strategic and I recognize that we could have uh, there's going to be people that are going to disagree with me on on this strategy and you know that's fine that's you know, that's valid there's different ways to look at doing things, but I believe that the greatest threat to liberty is centralized power and I think there's a lot of evidence that I can point to that bears that out. You know, The bigger the government is, the more powerful it is, the more authority it wields, the more people it has control over, the more dangerous it is to liberty. So I take a, a very serious, uh, you know, if you go to my personal website, decentralizing for peace and freedom is, is kind of the tagline that I use. So I'm all about decentralization. I think whenever there's an option between increasing the power of a government, uh, and centralizing authority in one place and decentralizing it I will take decentralization every time and you know if it, if people want to go read actually the article it kind of gets into the weeds and actually I quote Rothbard I quote Hans Hermann Hoppe where they talk about a decentralizing strategy so i think decentralization is is extremely important i think when you centralize power it may get you certain benefits but in the long run you're undermining yourself and i use the example of monopoly i call it monopoly government and there's a lot of people that like monopoly government progressives love monopoly government because they can impose their will on 350 million people and do it in one-stop shopping you know But I'm sure most of your listeners would agree with me that we wouldn't want Walmart to be the only place you could buy groceries in the United States. Now, I could sit here and make some, you know, there might be some good, you know, economies of scale, things that Walmart could potentially do if it was had no competition. That might be great. But in the long run, we don't want that kind of monopoly. I don't want that kind of monopoly in government. And I think that's rapidly what we're moving towards in the United States, which brings me to the second stream of this debate and this is where it kind of flows together america's constitutional system was intended to be a decentralized system which works out really well for me uh, but there's there's really no debating this you know you can look at the ratification debates you can look at the way the constitution was sold uh, you know we could argue about whether or not they were being sincere or not but the constitution was Ratified based on this idea that the federal government would be limited in power, and in fact James Madison actually wanted to have the federal government have a veto power over all state laws, which basically we have today through the Supreme Court, but Madison wanted that it was firmly rejected uh, during the the Philadelphia convention. it was rejected later on when he formed the Bill of Rights and he tried to have some of those Bill of Rights apply to the states, that was rejected. So we have a constitutional system that is set up in such a way as to limit the power of the federal government. And when you start allowing the federal government to do things like regulate marriage that it was never intended to do, you are undermining the entire system. Now. We could say that you know it's a good thing that the Supreme Court has said we have to have marriage equality, and and that's you know it's it increases the rights of marriage, and that's a good thing. But I think underneath of that, you have first off you've destroyed the uh, the constitutional system because you've allowed the federal government to take power that it was never intended to do. Even if it was for a good reason, now you've unleashed that power. And when they come along and do something that's crap, and you know they will because 90% of what they do is crap, you don't have any basis to stand up against it in the system anymore because you gave it away. And you know I think the uh, progressives are learning that lesson the hard way right now as they watch uh, – Donald Trump, you know, with, with his executive authority, they're horrified, but, you know, I don't have any sympathy for him because they spent the last eight years cheerleading Barack Obama as he took all of this unconstitutional executive authority, and this is what you get, you know? I, I wrote an article today, it was actually my newsletter, talking about, well, you know, it's uh, it's Donald Trump's pen and phone now. You. If you remember the, uh, the pen and phone comment that Obama made back in, I think it was like 2014, he said, I've got a pen and I've got a phone and I can make these executive orders. Well, you know, Trump's got the pen and the phone and you maybe should have thought about not having him, wanting him to use that before he gave uh, Obama the power. So libertarians have a tendency to do the same thing when it comes to the Bill of Rights. And trying to use the federal government, I call it the liberty enforcement squad, which I realize is kind of snarky, but that's really (laughs) what it is. It's this desire to use centralized authority to impose liberty. And I just, I find that a little bit. Creepy. I find it very, very dangerous, and it doesn't fit within the constitutional system. And you know, we don't have time to get into the depths of this. And if I don't, if you have a show notes page, maybe you can link to some of this material. But sure. there is there is absolutely no debate that the Bill of Rights was not intended to apply to the states. There is absolutely, and people argue with me about this all the time. And finally, I'll just say, look, show me the founding era evidence that the Bill of Rights was ever intended to apply to this. even. John Marshall, who was like the huge nationalist, even he said it wasn't supposed to apply to the states. It didn't apply to the states until about 50 years after the ratification of the 14th Amendment when the court created out of thin air this idea of the incorporation doctrine, which is a bastardization of the 14th Amendment. And a lot of people buy into this because, again, they think, well, we can advance liberty, but you're advancing a lot of other garbage along with it. And for every good thing you get, you get about 45 bad things. I remember. Just a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a case in Maryland where they went to the federal courts because uh, the Maryland some police department there took some dude's DNA, you know, without a without a warrant. And the the federal court said, well, yeah, you can do that. Well, you know what? Now that's the law of the land in all fifty states. And and that gets down to this whole idea of this decentralization. And I know I'm I'm rambling along here, but I'll kind of close Rumble it out. Way. With that's this. what we do here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll kind of I'll, I'll kind of leave it at, at, with this, you know. I don't want people to think that, oh, this Mike Harry guy's crazy. He thinks states don't violate rights. Oh, absolutely, I know that states violate rights. States are awful. States will do some horrible things. But I think that you should use the system within the state, the state constitution, all of which have bills, bills of rights incidentally, to deal with the violations that your states are doing on rights and not use the power of the federal government to try to impose it from above, because when you centralize that authority, then you end up in a situation where it applies again to all fifty states. Now I'm in Kentucky. If uh, you know my state legislature does something horrible, really, really horrible, it's not that difficult for me to move across the border to Tennessee or you know head over to Indiana, or, God forbid West Virginia. That's that's from my wife. I'm always from West, West Virginia. So I can say that I can you know, I can do that. It would certainly be a hassle, but it could be done. But when the federal government imposes some garbage on me, it's really not that easy for me to move to Mexico. You know, I mean, it's it's a scale. So I'm willing to risk the chance that Connecticut or Texas or California will do something that inhibits liberty that I think is bad. I'm willing to take the chance that that's going to happen and not have the federal government come in and police it because I think it's more dangerous to do that and centralize it than I do for California when, when you could leave California if you need to. So it's a, it's a decentralization thing. It gives you options. It gives you more options to to escape. And, uh, you know, I, I finally I'll this is the, the comment that I get often from Liberty. Chain. Are you saying that? This is actually what uh, Nick said to me, you know, do you believe that the state of Virginia should be able to prohibit a black man and a white woman from getting married? Well, no I don't believe that. But neither do I believe that the federal government should come in and police that. And just because I say that I disagree with a method doesn't mean that I want the outcome. In other words, you know, let's say that there's a, a homeless guy in my neighborhood, and, and a couple of my neighbors come by and say, "Hey, let's go over to Joe's house, beat the crap out of him, take fifty dollars so we can feed this homeless guy." Well, I say, "No, I'm, I don't want to do that." Well, it doesn't mean I want the homeless guy to be hungry. It means I don't want to beat up Joe. And, and so that's kind of my position on this. And, and it's interesting that Nick—I didn't even—I didn't get into this with him. It's interesting that Nick said that because he was. Mentioning specific love, specifically loving versus Virginia, and it happens. I'm in an interracial marriage, so you know, in Virginia in the 1960s, I wouldn't be allowed to get married. But quite frankly, I don't want the federal government to come in and, and make my relationship valid. I'll deal with that myself. Thank you very much. So that's that's the basics of it. And I want to say, you know, I I don't mean to be be slandering Nick because I think that. When you get into what he was saying, I, I think there's some nuances there that that are very that are very valid. And like I said, we could debate strategy. We can debate whether centralization is ultimately what we should or shouldn't do. I don't think the constitutional ramifications are are debatable, and, and I think that should be a concern if you're a libertarian, because the libertarian party operates in the American constitutional system, so that American constitutional system should matter. But uh, I, I do I do want to make it clear that I don't have any animosity towards Nick or any lack of respect for, for what he's doing. We, we have maybe some different points of view on what the federal government should or shouldn't do, but I, I say that with respect. So,
1: All right, Mike. Well, speaking of respect, I need to take a minute out to pay some respect to today's sponsors. We'll dig a little bit deeper into this issue in just a minute. Hey guys, I know there are a lot of podcasts out there. There's a lot of competition for your ears, and it's hard to find time to listen to everything. But there's one show that I make sure to carve out the time to listen to every single day, and that's the Jason Stapleton Program. Jason has been a guest on this show before, and he really does a fantastic job with his show, where he breaks down current events from a libertarian perspective Five days per week. That's right. Five days per week. I don't know how he does it, but it's not just a podcast. It's also a live daily studio show, which broadcasts over at Jason Stapleton.com. You can of course find his podcast on iTunes on Stitcher, Wherever you listen to this podcast, you should have no problem finding Jason Stapleton as well. And the great thing about Jason's show is that it's so professionally done that you have no concerns about sharing it with your parents, your friends, your family. You're not going to get any of that Alex Jones conspiracy stuff. You're just going to get straightforward talk about libertarian ideals in our rapidly changing world. Be sure to check out the Jason Stapleton program. All right, Mike, I just want to go back a little bit. And, and I think the marriage example is a kind of a tough one because marriage is a, a kind of a positive right in a way, at least, uh, you know, when it comes to states issuing a license and that kind of thing. And I think almost every libertarian, whether it's you or Nick Sawark or Ron Paul, probably all agree that states at any level shouldn't be involved in marriage or shouldn't be issuing licenses. And then when you're going to force certain states to accept certain definitions, that's it's somewhat of a positive right when you, when you force someone to sort of issue a license. So I think marriage... Marriage is kind of a a tough issue, but there are some other issues where things might look a little different or or maybe not at your point of view. But I want to go back to the wordage of uh, the uh, Tenth Amendment, as you sort of pointed out earlier, where it says the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the state's are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. So I, I, my question, I guess, would kind of be like, at what point do the rights of, quote, the people supersede those of the particular states that those people reside in? Like, say there is, let's just put marriage aside, but let's say there's a state that is just egregiously violating rights. And, um, you know, we can think of various ways they might do that. All states, like we said, are uh, on various levels right now. But, I mean, we, I guess we may as well take it to the extreme. What if a state just enact slavery again for whatever reason uh ohio i don't want to pick an ohio let's just say ohio or some nameless state decides to reenact slavery i mean how can the rights of the people uh in those states who are now enslaved be defended in cases where state governments are violating them while also, you know, staying with that original intent, as you as you point out, of of keeping the federal government sort of out of those issues. I mean, uh, you know, it might might be nice to say that you can always move, but you know, if you're someone who's been enslaved, you can't really move, and or even if you're just someone who's been put in jail for marijuana, well, you're in jail, you, you can't move. So, what would your answer I right. guess,
0: be to that? So, let's not use slavery because I don't think. I mean, that's a it's a fun extreme example, but the fact of the matter is, the Constitution actually does prohibit that now. So you know that's the federal government legitimately would have uh you know power to not have people. Let's well, no, let's, okay. well, let, well let's use it
1: then for a second though but you so you do, so do you think that the federal government would be justified in that case and then we can move to a different example but would you would say that that would within be Within the
0: constitutional system I absolutely think it would. I think if you if you've got people I, enslaving I, people somewhere I think you've got a lot more problems sure. than uh, than you know the the state federal relationship at that point.
1: And to be clear when I say that I'm not saying and therefore, they should wage war on the states, like right. Abraham Lincoln. No, right. I'm more saying like if there's a guy with slaves and the states saying, "Well, we're not going to touch him." I mean, I can't really argue with whoever it is going and right. Well, those I, I couldn't
0: either. But let's let's use the example of guns because that's a little bit that's a little sure. bit more of a real realistic. That,
1: yeah, that's absolutely. a relevant one. <laughs> uh,
0: and so, and this is where I blow people a lot of a lot of libertarians mind and most conservatives is I don't believe that we should be striving to have the Second Amendment. Imposed on all 50 states, and people, what are you talking about? Because you know, guns is—it's a very emotional issue, but we have to go back to the constitutional system. The federal, again, the federal government—I mean, the Bill of Rights was never intended to apply to the states, okay? And it didn't up until uh, this this incorporation doctrine was created out of thin air by the by the courts. So. What, but what do you do? And that's where people say, well, Mike, are you telling me that, that the state of California should be able to uh, you know, ban assault rifles and do all of these things that violate the Second Amendment? And I look at him and say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because it's important to remember what is the preeminent political society in the American system. It is the state. And if the state did not give, the states did not give the federal government the authority to police, whatever action it is, in this case, guns, then when you allow the federal government to do that, you've undermined the entire system. So, so they say, well, what do you do? You know, how, how do you deal with this? Well, let's take it up a level, okay? I don't think there are many libertarians who would say, well, you know what? We should have a world government to police the United States so that when the United States violates somebody's rights, then the world government could come in and hold the United States accountable. I mean, Actually, I can't say that most people won't say it because I actually had an email that thought that was a good idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I know some people out here in California right. that would be perfectly fine right. with that. <laughs> but in, in essence, that's what you're doing. And I'm just saying, okay, so I, if you say, no, I don't want the world government. Well, what do you do? Well, you work within the system that the United States has established. You would try to amend the Constitution. Uh, you, know, you would vote the bums out. You would sue in federal court. There's all these steps that you take uh, when the federal government oversteps its bounds and does things that it's not supposed to. I'm just saying you do the same thing in California. You, know, you amend the California Constitution. You do the things within the Cali- – I believe California actually does not have a uh, provision in its state constitution to protect firearms, and that's why I kind of picked it, because actually most states do. Uh, there are a few that don't. I know Iowa doesn't, New York doesn't. I don't think New Jersey does, but people in those states they should get busy and work within that preeminent political society to get the job done, to protect the rights within their states, to hold that government within its uh, within its powers, instead of going to the federal government to use the federal government as the liberty enforcement squad. Just like I don't want the world government to come in and uh, you know enforce its will on the United States when the United States doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Because I don't trust what these world government people are going to do. And I don't trust what Washington, D.C. is going to do. Of course, I don't really trust what Frankfurt's going to do here in Kentucky either. But I have a lot more ability to control things at the state level than I do at the federal level. And that's, you know, part of it that goes back to the work that we do at the Tenth Amendment Center. We have the we have the power at the state level because of the sovereignty of the state, because it is the preeminent political society in the American system. We have the ability to block things that the the federal government is doing. When you start centralizing and saying, well, the federal courts can do this and the federal courts can do that, you undermine the state's ability because you've centralized power at the federal level. And, And again, you know, this is where it comes down to, to to me you either want to centralize authority or you don't want to centralize authority and if you want to centralize authority for a certain small number of things i just say good luck with that because when you start the centralizing process you're going to get absolute centralization and the federal government's going to be, be dictating you know whatever you do you'll end up in a situation where the federal government is telling you what uh, kind of light bulb you can screw into your fixture and uh, what kind of you know, how much water you can have in your toilet, which is exactly where we are today.
1: All right, Mike. Well, I do appreciate you coming on and giving your side of the view. I know we gave, uh, you know, a lot of airtime to Nick's point of view. So I wanted to make sure we, we uh, you know, do the same for the other other direction of things, for the more of the state's rights view on things. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think there's a perfectly easy answer here. Cause like I said, there is philosophy and then there's real politic and our current political system. And sometimes those two things aren't going to perfectly mesh together, but I do think this is a, a very important conversation to push forward. And uh, before I let you go why don't you just let everybody out there know where else they can find your work, both at the 10th amendment center. I know you have your own website as well, as well as the podcast and feel free to plug away on anything else. All right.
0: Well, on. the first place I really hope people will visit is 10th amendment center.com. It's all spelled out. And particularly look at our blog and look at all of the different bills that are being introduced across the country that, in some way, uh, limit or undermine or block federal authority i think we're over we may be over 300 bills that we're tracking now and we're early in the legislative session this is exciting stuff so uh look at your your state if you see something that's going on in your state i highly encourage you to call your state representative and your state senator and say hey we want you to support these pieces of legislation whether it be uh, marijuana legalization or limits on surveillance or uh you know hemp or All of these different issues. It's interesting, and I tell people this all the time. If you've ever called Washington, D.C., you realize that it is an exercise in futility. You talk to an intern, and you're going to get a form email back that may or may not address what you actually talked about. If you call your state representative in most states, I guarantee you they're going to listen to you because they never get phone calls from constituents on issues, and it freaks them out. So... You have a great deal of, of power, and that's one of the reasons that I'm so big on state and local action. We've actually used to joke, Michael Bolden and I, uh, Michael Bolden being the executive director at the Tenth Amendment Center, we used to joke, just don't ever call the 202 area code. You know, just focus on what's going on at your state and local level. So go over to 10thamendmentcenter.com and see what's going on over there. Get involved. If you're interested in our work and you think what we're doing is worthwhile, we'd love it if you become a member. You can do it as, for as little as like $3 a month, and these little – Donations, uh, these memberships help us continue with the work that we're doing. Second place you can visit is my own website, michaelmeharry.com. And uh, over there, you'll, you'll find my podcast that I do once a week. It's just a little 10-minute podcast. I call it Thoughts from a Hairy Head because it's basically just whatever happens to be bouncing around in my head. Uh, although generally it is dealing with constitutional issues and political decentralization. So uh, you can find that there. I blog relatively regularly over there. I have books. Uh, I've written a book called Our Last Hope, Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty, which is the philosophical, historical, and constitutional case for nullification. That's a subject you're interested in. Uh, I think it's a pretty darn good book. So you can uh, pick that up over there as well. And then a final place you can look if you want to get into a little bit more of a philosophical kind of vibe is a site that I created not long ago called godarchy.org godarchy and uh basically explore exploring the intersection of Christianity and the state and it comes from a much more anarcho-capitalist point of view uh, than what you'll get on my main website I don't talk much about the constitution Talk more about political philosophy philosophy of freedom and why we should uh, pretty much just ignore the government because it sucks so uh but it's from a Christian perspective, so if you're not a Christian, it might annoy you so but you know whatever, you can head over there and uh, I appreciate all the support and I appreciate the opportunity to come on the show been kind of watching what you do from a distance for a long time and and I'm happy to be uh be a guest
1: well, Mike, it was great to have you here I really do appreciate you once again coming on the program and giving your point of view and you know I think these conversations are important, so I'm glad that we're out there having them so keep up the great work man and keep on thank growing. you. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Michael Meharry of the Tenth Amendment Center. Be sure to check out everything he's doing, his blogs, his podcasts, just like me. He's a guy out there giving his thoughts on the best ways to advance liberty, and we might not always agree— Now, this is an issue that I'm not 100% convinced on, I'm just trying to sort of advance the conversation by demonstrating both sides. Sometimes through my own conversation with my fellow lines of liberty, sometimes through guests, because the fact is, there's not necessarily a 100% right or wrong answer on some of these issues, because sometimes we are meeting the philosophical, where we do value individual rights, with the practical, where sometimes... Even if the federal government is correct in a situation, we might think that practically it's not a good idea to have them in certain roles, or or even vice versa. We might think that a state is correct, but a state can also have its own sense of tyrannies, and is it necessarily good for libertarians to just overlook that? These are the kind of questions that I want you guys to be thinking about out there. We can talk about this stuff with us as well by coming over to our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can find it just by typing Lions of Liberty Forum in your little search bar on Facebook. As long as you look like a real person, we'll get you right in there to join the conversation. As always, you can drop me an email as well, M A R C at lionsofliberty.com. Those are also the same methods, my friends, you can use to submit a letter of liberty where I will take some questions for listeners each and every week and attempt to answer them here. And Guess what? We're going to do it again right now. Write me a letter of liberty Ain't got no time for tyranny Time to rent alone Right here from my home home. A lion just wrote me a letter I don't care how many fallacies I hear I'll take your question and answer it here Time to rent alone Right here from my home. home A lion just wrote me a letter Well, you wrote me a letter, it's about liberty, and I'll answer it now. Listen to my words, they're about liberty, I'll explain the best I can. Roar. (laughs) Yep, I'm having fun with these guys, I really am. If you think I'm having too much fun and I'm getting a little too silly here, well then buzz off, man. This is a fun show. We're not just here to be stuffy academics. We're here to have a good time, and I'm going to do so by answering some letters of liberty today, starting with Archie Flower. Archie asks, if you could make one amendment to the Constitution, what would you change and why? That's an interesting question, Archie, and it kind of plays into... A lot of the conversations that have been going on lately, especially when it comes to states' rights and how, you know, technically it wouldn't be constitutional for a federal government to, say, stop a state from waging a war on drugs if it were so to choose. So, to solve that problem, (laughs) I would have an amendment passed and ratified by the states legally, yada, yada, yada. But in this exercise, I get to decide that that's going to happen, that the war on drugs is illegal, (laughs) that uh, ingesting and consuming plants and chemicals and whatever substances man or woman may choose is a human right, an individual right, and any organization other than private organizations via contract and that kind of thing, you know, you can you can join an HOA that says no drugs in our in our collective territory and if you agree to that and sign a contract based on that, well okay, but that's not a war on drugs. That just that's just private contract enforcement. What I would say is, you know, This is a human right. It's an individual right to be able to consume whatever substances we so choose, period, end of story. And that would solve maybe a lot of problems (laughs) or maybe cause a lot more. I don't know. But I think it's such a basic issue, such a very simple black and white issue from a libertarian perspective. That's what I would want to pass. I would essentially want to end the war on drugs at the federal level. Michael Mee asks, do you think the current USA government is more likely to become libertarian first, as in— The current LP and or its policies become the dominant scheme or completely collapse first meaning the U.S. Constitution is no longer the basis for the government and nothing similar places it, and or republicanism and democracy ends in this region. So basically, I think what Mike is asking is, you know, are, can we get to what we want, which is a better world, a more libertarian society, a, a society where the general policies of, of libertarianism are what the government reflects, or is it more likely that the whole thing just falls apart? And boy, that's a toughie, because... You know, I like to be optimistic, and I am optimistic, and I do think that the best way for change is politically. It's through convincing our fellow man of the right way to do things and the right things not to do. And hopefully, once you convince enough people of this, the the politics will reflect that. Now, I don't know if the Libertarian Party is ever going to field a president. They haven't even really achieved a congressional seat or a Senate seat. So it's really, from that perspective, it's hard to see that happening anytime soon. At the same time, you know, we're seeing libertarian Things occur in many ways. We're seeing the war on drugs begin to be curtailed uh, at the state level and even on the federal level in some ways as well, although with Jeff Sessions coming in here, who knows? But uh, overall, I I would say that there's also that possibility of economic collapse. We're $20 trillion in debt. But even in that kind of event, even in an economic sort of collapse, even in a currency collapse— I don't really see the government collapsing. Sadly, if anything, in, in that event, I think the government sort of strengthens and, and, and clamps down when there's some sort of chaos and that kind of thing. So I do – while I can see the possibility of collapse in, in a certain extent, you know, Ron Paul, Peter Schiff, they always talk about economic collapse and, and the case for why that's almost inevitable. My optimistic side is going to say that when it comes to changing things and making a more libertarian world, it really is going to have to come through Changing the ideas of our fellow man and and manifesting that politically, and I think our political system is going to change a lot, uh, especially with the advent of the internet. I mean, I think Donald Trump is essentially the first internet president we've ever had. He's essentially a a third party candidate that was able to become president with a loose alliance of Republicans. And while Donald Trump is certainly no libertarian, uh, that pathway to creating political change, uh, that precedent, I I think we can build on that in many ways. Uh, If we can learn a lot of lessons from Donald Trump without having to emulate his policy or his, you know, narcissism and all, all the stuff that people hate about Donald Trump. And lastly, Austin Broderson asks, in honor of my recent viewing of Boondock Saints, great movie, guys, by the way, highly recommend it, is there room for vigilante justice in libertarianism or even with government we have now? Now, this is a controversial issue in many ways. Now, some people who consider themselves anarchists, true anarchists, who really do want no form of government... And look, we can we can argue about the world government. Some anarchists are fine using the word government to describe you know systems of law, even uh, if they aren't coercive. And others would reject the word altogether. But there are some anarchists who would be totally fine with vigilante justice. And you know, I'm fine with it to an extent. But the way I describe it, it wouldn't really be vigilante. I mean, if you see a crime occurring in progress, if you see someone being beaten, being robbed, being raped, being attacked, you have every right to be a quote unquote vigilante in that case and step in. Uh, I think the problems come in when we sort of want to take justice into our own hands after the fact. You know, when you find out about a crime or you suspect someone of a crime, they haven't gone through any sort of process, they haven't been had the chance to uh, have their case heard before any sort of legal system, and you just decide, well, I don't care. I'm just going to go decide that they're worthy of death, and then I'm going to go kill this person, because maybe they maybe they punched my wife in the face. <laughs> and someone punched my wife in the face. I become angry. I go hunt them down, or at least I think they punched her in the face. That's what I heard. That's what I believe. And I kill this person in rage. Now, you might understand my rage, you know, my wife's got a big black eye and I'm am a little ticked off, so people can understand my emotions, but is that really the society we want to live in where, you know, people just decide what the certain punishment should be for certain crimes and uh, you know, go enact it on their own. And uh, to me that's very anti-libertarian. You know, to me everyone deserves their quote unquote day in court. Now we may disagree with the ways Courts are currently funded the way they currently operate, but any sort of civilized society needs some sort of legal process, some sort of way for someone to present a valid defense and some sort of objective process for determining punishment, whether it's restitution to the victim or whether it's confining them in some way away so they are not putting others in danger to have individuals just up and deciding to enact law on their own and to skip up any sort of process. Very dangerous and dare I say, tyrannical. So no, I don't really support vigilantism in that sense at all. Alright guys, that's going to do it for the Letters of Liberty today. Again, if you want to submit a Letter of Liberty, I will post a weekly thread in the Lions of Liberty forum. You can also shoot me an email markmarc at lionsofliberty.com If you've sent me one and it hasn't been answered yet, don't worry. I am keeping track of all of them. Sometimes if someone's asked a few questions in a row, I'll skip them for a week or two to get somebody else in. Uh, I am keeping a full list here, and at some point we might actually do a full episode just answering Letters of Liberty to kind of catch up and get everybody in, but I do plan to at least get one question from everyone who submitted one. Now, if you submitted three or four, I might not get them all in. That's just the way it's going to be. But, I'll try to get at least one or two of them in. Fair enough? Fair enough. Guys, it's been a blast. Please do join the conversation. Please do come join the Lions of Liberty forum. Please do find us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty, Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Share our stuff from social media. Tell all your friends about the Lions of Liberty podcast and all the great conversations we are having here. Until next time, folks, live long and live free.